Welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. Thank you for joining me. I speak with Susan Shin, my friend, who is also a Chief Human Resources Officer. Susan is a remarkable human with a remarkable story. She frequently inspires me with her bold take on life and in business. She experienced tragedy early on, which has shaped her work ethic and her ability to take risks. She graduated from Harvard Business School and worked at elite organizations like Disney, Goldman Sachs, and Amazon. Susan shares a unique perspective on how to be successful in business at any level. Enjoy this episode. So you and I have known each other for what feels like an eternity. <laughs> I'm totally joking. I'm so joking. We have known each other at three years now, four, I don't know what it is. Three? Three years. Three years. You basically saved my life. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I was at that career crossroads, and um, it's funny, I do remember the first time we talked because I was trying to decide whether or not I wanted to make a move, and um, you were going to be my boss at, the, at Amazon. <laughs> and, um, and I remember talking to you, and almost immediately I felt like we had this sort of natural connection, and you were very honest and upfront. And as someone who is you know, trying to get me to take the job at the same time, you were very like honest about like, here are the things you should consider. Like you weren't very salesy or false, I think in that exchange. And I love that about you. Like, I feel like we kind of connect on that being genuine and authentic and like, it means a lot. And so, um, so then I came over to Amazon and we worked together and you were awesome. It was short lived, even more short lived for you than me. Yeah. Um, so it was quick. But um, I feel like in such a short time, I learned a lot from you. And so we'll talk a little bit more about that and how you've cultivated some of these awesome leadership skills that you have. But maybe we could just start with what your current role is uh, now and mm-hmm. what you're doing and tell me a little bit about that. One of the things that I hope in this podcast when people listen is that they can hear about different professions. They can hear also about different paths of how people got there. It's never a straight line. I know it wasn't for me, and so I think sometimes you can benefit from hearing other people's stories. So that's really why I'm doing this, is to help inspire people, help people, inform people. So, welcome. Thank you. You're welcome. So tell me a little bit about your current job. So I'm the Chief Human Resources Officer at a company called Pella Mid-Atlantic. So a lot of people may have heard of uh, the name Pella. Mm -hmm. They uh, make high-end windows and doors. But uh, I work for one of the distributorships of Pella. It's one of the uh, nation's largest distributorships of windows and doors where we basically sell them, install them, and service them. Um, So it's not probably somewhere that I thought I would have ended up. Um, But then again, nothing about my career is linear. (laughs) Right. Um, And, uh, but I'm having the time of my life. I really am. And what makes it so great? Like what makes it, and I would say too, like when you just, in your description of that, I'm like distribution, I would not think of, right? Yeah. And when we, we're going to talk more about Susan's background, which is fascinating, but 
I think you're a great example of, um, you know, there's opportunities that present themselves and why, why you take those opportunities and really evaluating that for the things that matter to you. Mm -hmm. Because I think you're someone that's been very connected to that and it's taken some of us a little longer to figure that out. So, but tell me first why it's so great and why you love it. Well, I think in my dotage, I'm at the point in my career where I, I probably don't need more name brands on my resume. Right. right. So I've just gotten uh, probably a little bit sharper and smarter about what I'm looking for. I've been very lucky in every job that I've had. Me And um, uh, I would say in the last couple jobs, I've picked the job because of the leader. Um, I believe that culture and my personal engagement and growth is most correlated to the leader that I work for. And I also know myself well enough that I don't know how to give anything less than 120%. So if I'm gonna give that much, it's gotta be for a leader I believe in. I believe in the story, uh, that they inspire, that their heart is in the right place, that they understand the business um, operations and that they value human capital mm -hmm. that is the business that you and I are in right so right. Um, I ended up following uh, the president of my last company to this company he uh, George Bowman bought and purchased uh, purchased the company and is now the CEO back in November of 2018 and uh, I joined uh, the company in February of 2019 and so he really probably uh, is the biggest driver how much I love that job because he understands human capital. And so therefore, I'm given a lot of latitude around um, not just the normal traditional practices of HR, because that's fine and that's good, but um, around both the strategy of HR, mm -hmm. the operational execution of HR, how it aligns with business goals and objectives, how it impacts every executive there and every employee there, that's what I care about, the ability to make an impact. And that's something you mentioned that I think, you know, HR, it's really had quite a journey and its own evolution around what it is. And I think people refer to it human resources, human capital, talent management, talent delivery, like there's all these words now that describe it, but certainly in the last 10 years for me, there's this great evolution of we are more than back office, processing and procedures of human resource policies, that it's really this opportunity to be strategic and think about vision as it relates to workforce planning and how does that impact the whole of the organization. So it seems like you have that in what you're doing now. Can you just talk a little bit at a high level, like what's a day in the life? Because I think sometimes that's an interesting view to see, like just you know, what are some of the things that you deal with when, as a, as a CHRO, and you have a business leader that is supportive and uh, values your input and your judgment? So tell me a little bit about what a day might look like for you. Sure. Um, so I'll answer that a little bit non-traditionally. <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> and um, start it with what time I wake up in the morning. Mm. Are we getting a whole day in the life? We're getting a whole oh, day. Oh, I love it. Yes. Oh, I love it. Um, I wake up each morning between 5 and 5.30 in the morning. And um, I'm not a morning person. So I'll start with that. But I do it because how I start my day and the process and the rituals I go through to get my head situated the right way sets the tone for the entire day. So if it starts not so good up front, 
then yeah. my ability to have a clear mind, make impact, give 120% gets much more diluted. So I, I wake up at 5, 5.30 in the morning, two to three times a week I will go to the gym and get the tar kicked out of me by a trainer. <laughs> and again, that's not my favorite thing in the world to do, but I do believe in order to be an effective leader, the mind, body, um, uh, sort of spirituality pieces do have to come together in some level of alignment yeah. or you're going to get drained. So, And is that something that you've learned based on your history, right? Like, is that a, a more evolved lesson for you, like yeah. in terms of making sure that that's incorporated? It is. I think um, at the older you get, you know, I'm currently 48 years old, you're also feeling it physically. <laughs> <laughs> um, you're also feeling everything right. physically. You still have the demands of being a parent, if you are a parent, or whatever those other demands are, and your ability and your energy level to get everything done and do it well starts to diminish. So you have to proactively find ways to make sure that the whole body, the whole body system yeah. is running on all cylinders. And we're not perfect at right. it. I'm certainly not perfect at it. But that starts my day. And if that is not there, then I would tell you my effectiveness probably goes down by 20% that day alone. Interesting. Yeah. So I go, I wake up, I work out, and then I scroll for the most important things of the day. What's in my email? I don't read them all because you can't get everything done. But I look to see what are the most important things I, I need to be aware of and what are the most important things I need to answer. Then I drive into work and I listen to a podcast because... I, the relatable podcast, <laughs> in fact. Always. <laughs> when I wake up and when I go home. Yeah. Um, but I think that you also have to have, to have time to turn your brain off um, and to listen to things that are a little bit more esoteric. And right. And always in the zone of what you're doing. So I do that. So the time I get into the office where it's 7.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning, there are people already lined up outside my including my CEO, mm -hmm. um, who is a big supporter of human capital, but he's also um, a very unreasonable leader, as great CEOs should be, in my opinion. I think when you have to push for excellence, there has to be some level of unreasonableness that comes with that if you're going to be world class. So I know and I expect That's that, which is why before I come in, I've got to be in the right frame of mind to be able to take that on. Can I ask you a question yep. about that, just in terms of the word unreasonable? What does that mean? Uh, when you say unreasonable to me, that means, like I immediately think of difficult or I think of, um, you know, you and I have been around uh, the boardroom <laughs> And I think there's certain demeanors that correspond with these, not always, and that's why, <clears throat> excuse me, I want to ask you the question about unreasonable, because I think it can manifest in being difficult, challenging, arrogant, rude, raising voices, those kind of ways, or unreasonable can just be high expectations, a little bit of, you know, there's that thumb pressure that's kind of always there to do more to be better. So I'm curious in this scenario, what does unreasonable mean? Um, you know, that's a really interesting question, Teresa, because, you know, I, I sort of think back to, like, presidential elections and the people, these candidates who are running, 
and in this day and age, uh, because of social media and communication, you have to be squeaky clean to be able to run for president. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're the most equipped to be president. Mm -hmm. Because some of these things, in order to lead, you have had to go through these challenges yourself. Right. right? None of us are perfect, but we learn from our imperfection if you're self-aware. You learn from your bad leaders as much as you do your good leaders. I think that's true. Yeah, and so when you ask the question, which one is it? I would love to say in a utopian world, <laughs> it's they don't raise their voice, right. high standards, things like that. But I have learned over the years that I don't expect my leader to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And so they are human like the rest of us. Mm -hmm. And so it's probably somewhere in the middle. There is a line, of course, where right. people are abusive you know, uh, through their language, which is absolutely not acceptable. But, um, you know, when they're emotional, they are unreasonable. You've got a heavy load and they say go faster or this isn't the right way and why didn't you get this done? There's an unreasonable that comes along with that that might not always be fair, but that's okay. I think when you get to an executive level, it is about being able to manage conflicting priorities managing upwards appropriately, because that's a third of all of our jobs, yeah. right? And um, uh, and so it gives you, in my view, the opportunity to be better. Yeah. To maybe help him see differently, or maybe I'll perform differently, or I'll position it differently in my head, or I'll question the own my own assumptions and biases. Um, and I literally do that daily. And I do it daily with my CEO, and he's open to it. Doesn't always love it, but right. he's open to it. So I have two follow-up questions to that because, one, I the managing up piece. It's so funny. I'm coaching someone right now who's uh, graduated from college, and he's about to go on the interview run with all the consulting organizations. And I asked him, have you heard of this term managing up? He had not because I'm sure it's not as familiar when you haven't quite had work experience. So we talked a lot about what that means and how do you answer questions that are in that frame of, you know, managing up. And I think you are someone that I've observed, you're very good at that. And I also think that you have a way about you that we've talked personally where you can disassociate to some extent of the personal relationship with that person to further the mission, vision. Like there's a to me, like you're better at this than I am. I'm, it's a, it's, I'm a work in progress as, as it relates to this piece of um, disassociating the personal from the professional and just delivering on what's required and your ability to prioritize and manage up to the things that matter. And I feel like that's such a critical skill. Some of it may be inherent, but maybe some of it's taught. So I'm curious how you've cultivated that or is that something that you've just known how to do were you taught that in school you know like because I do think it's an elusive skill so any words of wisdom that you have there I think could be really helpful yeah I, I, you know it's funny because as <clears throat> I do um, coaching uh, you know in past lives as well yeah. and coach internally I think that um, uh, that's where a lot of people struggle which is they have a high need to be liked uh, which who doesn't want to be liked and um, so they blur the lines of friendship and professional um, persona. And so um, I personally believe that 
as long as you set the right tone up front and the expectation around, this is the job, this is what I need from you, we're going to get along great, but this is the job and this is what we're going to do. And we all happen to be on the same boat trying to reach the same vision. Right. I think simple conversations like that help set the tone mm -hmm. of what uh, those boundaries are going to look like. Mm -hmm. I think I've just, I'm older now and I have more experience, so I understand the importance of boundaries. It's critical. It doesn't mean you're, you're going to draw a square box and nobody can go over those lines, but it does mean that you need to start with some baseline for yourself of where you feel like you're taking care of yourself, but you're also doing what you need to do organizationally, and what is that right balance? You'll never draw that perfect line up front. Right. So you have to draw a line, and then you got to let yourself step in and out of it, and you have to let those people step in and out of it until you realize, ooh, this was really uncomfortable. I need to redraw this line because I'm losing myself in this process. Mm -hmm. And so it's just something that I do on a regular basis because I'm human, and I've gone through all those experiences too where I've been let down by a coworker or a friend who's a coworker or who became a friend. Um, and so you just, as long as you have self-awareness enough to know that you've got to redraw those lines mm -hmm. so that you stay healthy mm -hmm. in your approach, um, then I think you will consciously always be thinking about, do I have the right lines drawn? Mm -hmm. We can change them over time. That's cool. It happens. We're all human. Um, but there is a healthy line and boundary that needs to be there up front. And then in terms of selecting what you do, like you said, you scroll through your email and you pick the most important things. So <clears throat> I used to be in a crisis man management job and there were six things coming at me at one time and I had to figure out what was the most critical and they're all critical. They're all crises. So one of the things that someone told me once is you, you got to figure out which ball... <laughs> do you still need to hold and the rest of them drop? Like what's the impact of the rest of the balls dropping versus what's the one that you're holding onto and you're delivering on? Like it's that whole risk reward or risk mitigation approach of what's the biggest impact if I don't do X. For you, I feel like this is my me observing you. I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've always feel like you are making your boss's day better and you're making your boss's boss's day better. And very simply put, like, you're looking at your CEO or whoever your boss is, and you're like, I'm going to make that person's life easier. And you know what? I'm going to take it a step further, and I'm going to make that person's, you know, senior even easier. That's how it's looked to me from the outside. Is that is it that simple, or is it more calculated in terms of how you approach that? Um, that's a really good question. Isn't um, it? It is. Well done, <laughs> Teresa. Um, I, I do think that the managing upwards piece, you know, as you know, yeah. I oftentimes tell you guys, you know, a third of your job is managing downwards, third is managing laterally, and third is managing upwards. And um, I think the thing that surprises people most is definitely managing laterally, uh, but more so managing upwards because you don't have positional authority. Correct. And so once I got that paradigm in my head that that was part of my job, in fact, that was a 33% of my job, uh, then I took a very concerted approach to making sure I managed upwards effectively and what did that look like. Um, and part of it is about making their lives easier, but part of it is also helping them to be better. 
Mm. And mm-hmm. so um, with managing upwards, it's just trickier, right? Because you can't say, hey, boss, I don't think you do this well. You need to, let's let's put it together an action plan about what this looks like, right? You're not going to have that yeah. conversation right. with your boss. Um, but you are going to have, and like you said, I've always had just very real and authentic relationships for the most part with people I work with. Uh, and I have chosen that boss upfront carefully so that I could have that conversation without them mistaking it as anything premeditated or right. to their detriment. So I can't have that conversation to say, hey, I noticed that you put a staff meeting on the calendar for next Friday. Can I give you a suggestion about what might make that staff meeting more effective for everybody, including you? So I'm always thinking about, you guys are all my customers. My boss is my customer, my peer is my customer, mm-hmm. and my direct reports are my customer. And if you're gonna provide excellent customer service, it means you have to fundamentally know what each one of those people want and manage to it. The customer service comment leads me to my next question. <laughs> it's a good segue. So, <sighs> okay. You had mentioned earlier your you had had some brand experiences. So I'm curious. Uh, I don't want to do a whole resume review, but if you don't mind, like, so you've worked at Disney, you worked at Goldman Sachs. In fact, you're wearing a Goldman Sachs t-shirt right now. Um, and some, you know, some, and then we both worked at Amazon. So it means some big name brand places. And I'm curious, uh, from those experiences, you know, how how, did, how have they influenced you now that you've had experiences in those types of organizations and now smaller organizations, what do you think is the biggest difference? Do you think that it's, you know, that much better of an experience at these, you know, branded organizations? I'm just curious for people that are maybe trying to make that choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing some consulting work for a very small company right now, and I'm fascinated by the people that are less experienced that are willing to take that leap and work in that environment because they're smart enough to know all that you can get from that. You know, it's it, you're going to get a lot more exposure to how to run a business when you're in a firm of 50 people than 150,000. But I'm curious for you, what's been some of the ahas out of that? Well, you know, I think there's two answers to that question for me. Um, n- nothing on my resume has been premeditated. Mm-hmm. So I'm a little bit of the, you know, on the not on the normal path. So when I chose jobs, um, I I sort of let serendipity Mm. be the driver of what job I took. How did I feel about it? What did I think I would get out of it? Um, It was was more about that and a gut feel than it was, hey, let me make sure I have Walt Disney Company on my resume Mm -hmm. and Goldman Sachs. I'm like, because I know I want to take these steps to get to Amazon. So it never happens happened that way um, for me. I think when you get too prescribed, you can sometimes um, start to pigeonhole yourself into um, going down a path that might end up being a path that you don't enjoy. I would be, um, for somebody who's starting out in their career or even mid-level in their career, I don't even advanced in their career, I'd still do the same thing. You know, where practicable and where you can, I would say take a risk. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you've only go around this world one time, and um, who wants to have regret and 
So in career, if you can, take some big risks so that you can see everything. Now, if you do have a specific view of where you want to end up, I do think that it is somewhat beneficial to go to a big company, right. learn lots of best practices, and then it's also fun to go to a small company so you can apply those best practices, but have the entrepreneurial culture where you can try new things, yeah. pilot things, take some risks, do it wrong, pivot. Um, so if I, had to, if I had to put a sequence to it, I think it's sort of nice to have a big, big company experience, and then you can yeah. have something more nimble. Agree. I, I, if I look back at mine, I spent a lot of time in professional services, and I, I think, not that I don't have any regrets because it all happens for a reason. I think knowing what I know now, it maybe would have been cool to take, after my first five years, go to a smaller place, apply that, then go to, you know, the bigger places that, that do have a brand, it's for a reason, where the some best practices like you talked about. So I think it's interesting to have that perspective. Um, one of the things I like to ask people on here is about their youth and really about experiences, whether middle school or high school, what, if there are any experiences that you remember that were either really challenging or even successes that you had that helped shape how you moved forward in your life. Uh, I do think that it's this extremely impressionable time for people <laughs> and it helps shape and form how we view the world and how we may approach things. And I'm just curious for you, do you have any highlights that you'd be willing to share that, that have influenced how you make decisions or the type of uh, choices you've made in your path? Yeah, so um, as you know, a lot of my background, um, so my father passed away when I was relatively young, I was 10. And my mom, they were immigrants. And so, you know, I had to go to work pretty early in life. So, you know, I was working full-time at a shoe store, you know, in my early teens. Yeah. I'm sure it was illegal, but <laughs> um, but it was a great experience because early on, I could see how a business was run. I could see and intuit um, people dynamics. And um, it's probably the very, very early side of my HR career in some right. ways, right? Um, so... You know, some of these things in life that seemingly are like real daggers or come out of the, out of the blue and are difficult to go, to deal with are actually what some of our blessings actually have, right. know, come right. from. And so I didn't really have a choice. You know, I had to go, I had to work, I had to, you know, um, help pay for a mortgage and whatever at a young age. Um, but I really learned resilience and I learned fortitude. And, um, you know, I always say to some of the newcomers that join our company, um, you know, it's great to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah, that's always great. There's always going to be somebody smarter. Right. For me, what I've seen over the years, the people who are truly successful and have peace with their success are the people who have a tremendous work ethic. They have that resiliency. So when they're not down, they're not dragged out. Right. They, they're inherent learners, so if they don't know how to do something, this isn't the people, these aren't the people who get super frustrated. They figure out a solution. Right. They go and they figure it out. They talk to people, they research it. They're not, they're not um, complacent about growing um, their minds. Right. Um, and lastly, humility. 
So, you know, it's a powerful combination between work ethic, humility, you know, discipline, fortitude, resiliency. You have those things, you can pretty much go anywhere. Do you feel like at that time, did you even know enough that you were being put upon? Or was it really about functioning and making it through? Because I think that's a different backdrop. Maybe it, it is or it isn't as motivating, but I'm curious about that. Like, is it, this is just what I have to do? Um, or was there any resentment like, hey, I'm only 10 years old and I have to take on these responsibilities? Yeah, I didn't have any resentment. My brother and sister were older than me, and uh, they did not do those things. But I recognize at that age that uh, people grow at different paces and at different times. And um, some of it may have been a little bit more intrinsic in me, the high need for responsibility to take care mm -hmm. of. Mm -hmm. So some of that might have been intrinsic. But no, I mean, none of my friends were doing it, so I didn't right. think it was normal. But at the same time, I didn't view it as an option. Right. And, um, you know, my kids have grown up in this neighborhood and, right. you know, in D.C. suburb. They've got everything at their disposal. Um, you know, they know everything's an option these days. Optionality abounds in yes, everything. everything. And I think sometimes it's a disservice um, to our kids because they don't have to. They choose to want right. to. Well, that is a luxury that most people in the world do not have. And I think, you know, the testing. Part of, you know, growing up in difficult circumstances, whatever those are, you're tested in a way that then fuels, I think, a layer of confidence that if you don't, you have to create that in other ways for people, uh, for kids like ours that maybe don't have the same type of stress that they need to resolve. Um, what about academically? So for you academically, you were, were was it, did that come easy to you? Was there not really any issues there? So I like this question around academic and social pressure. So at a very young age, you're working. Um, tell me a little bit just about academics for you, how that went for you, and then socially, were there any pressures that you were aware of or Gosh, you know, I think I was more clueless than most people because I um, was a little immune to all of that. Um, I don't think academics came easily. I think I worked hard for everything that I mm -hmm. got, but um, you know, I was a I was a really good student, and um, because I knew again that that was my path uh, to earning money, to providing for my family. So there was a, it wasn't, hey, you've got to get straight A's to be a good student, and that's what we expect. Maybe you say that to your kids these days, I don't know. But um, back then, it was a path to take care of a family, mm. right? So it's like Your family? Your family. immediate family. My like immediate that, family. at that time, yeah. you were already in that mindset totally. of, I've got to care for my brother and my sister and my mom. Yeah. And that was what was propelling you and driving you to do well. Yeah, it gives you that drive. You need the drive. When you have everything, that you take away a person's yeah. drive, and that's the worst thing you can do is take away one's drive. So um, I, my mom had no idea what I was doing any minute of any day because I had to figure it out. I had to teach her what a mortgage was, what this bill is, how to write a check. I had to teach her all those things, but in doing so, calling up and being a clueless 10-year-old to say, we got this bill and I don't understand what it means, I learned. 
I became an inherent learner. Mm -hmm. And then the best way, if you think about it from a training and L&D side, the best way to get information to stick in an adult learner's brain or anyone's brain is to then teach. So it's one Mm -hmm. thing to learn it, sit in the classroom, whatever, read a book. But when then you have to teach it, that's when it gets embedded in your DNA. That's when things start to stick. Right, right. So where companies, schools, organizations, where they put those people in a situation where you have to teach, that to me is the holy grail. Yeah, agree. Totally agree with that. So then in terms of going to college, so your high school experience, relatively normal, not maybe totally normal (laughs) given you were fatherless, but just, I mean, in terms of um, the academic piece, social piece, and how was your approach to college? Like, did you have to pay for college yourself? Mm-hmm. And so was that a consideration in terms of where you went? Yeah. And yeah. did you have any concerns about getting into college? Or it was more like, I just need to pick the best financial option? Yeah, I put my brother and sister through college. I put myself through college. Good and boy. so it was, hey, where's local that is has good, um, that we can, aff- that I could afford? You put your brother and your sister through college through money that you made working in? The shoe store, yeah. Are you kidding me? No. Yeah. No. How did you do that? I've been working at the shoe store since I was like 12 years old, full-time, 13 years old, and I saved every penny I had, and, you know, I filled out the financial. (laughs) (laughs) I filled out all the financial aid forms. I, you know, I got some scholarships as well, so, you know, yeah. And back then, sheesh, you could work your way and pay for college. Mm, Today, gosh, we saddle our kids such a it's such a um, epidemic that we have right. on our hands but back then you could work really hard I worked full-time through college paid for it all were they very grateful to you or do you I feel like they, they recognized that all the sacrifices you made for them not at that time but that's the other thing if you're going to do things for other people you have to do it free of wanting the approbation back once you start to attach that then you're always going to be disappointed. You do it because you want yeah, to do it. such a great... It's a hard thing to learn, yeah, I think, yeah. um, particularly if you are someone who's generally driven by doing good things for people or because you care. You do have to reconcile that very early on, that it's about that, and yeah. it can't be about getting things back or feeling gratitude that measures or is reciprocal because it... It's really hard to value that in a yeah. way that's like, oh, I did this for you, and so you're going to do this for me. It just is never that equal. Never that simple. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, and then um, so you went to Harvard Business School, mm-hmm. and when did that happen? Did that did you have work experience first before you went to Harvard Business School? Yes. And was that a goal? I'm sure people that are listening, you know, that's uh, marquee school, and people are fascinated about that experience. So tell me a little bit about that journey and how that happened for you. Uh, it was not a goal. Because like everything else, serendipity drove my decision-making real time. Um, But before that, yes, I had um, work experience. So I'd run a um, a campaign in in Maryland, and the gentleman became the majority leader. I ended up working for Ted Kennedy in his campaign, his labor committee on education, and then in his personal office. And then, um, which was a tremendous experience, because I think that was the first time I'd worked anywhere where perfection was the standard. And, and I, did you identify and relate to it? Like, did you like it? Um, 
I think, you know, if you're type You a, are sort of like that. So, you know, I'm always about things that resonate. Like, if you find yeah. your tribe, you find your people, you're like, oh, oh, I like this, right? Like, this makes sense to me. Yeah, I think it was the first time. You know, I was type A. I yeah. did well in school, all these other things, worked hard. Um, but it was the first time where the standard was 100% excellence because of uh, the need to serve a greater good. Mm. And mm -hmm. so, mission. yeah, I was yeah. like, I mean, you don't get a stronger mission than when you work in an office like that where people are 120% committed to an agenda, whether it's healthcare, right. education. And I just happened to work in the Senate during the time where there was a lot more civility between the parties. Across the border, um, people were constantly compromising on things that, that made sense to compromise on. I felt like Ted Kennedy was... Um, you know, the leader in that. You know, he was so well-respected on both sides of the aisle. Um, and the things that he wouldn't compromise on, he didn't. He was mm -hmm. very specific in, in what his um, value system was for the country. And so, geez, how do you not get around, how do you not get, like, into sucked that. into that, right? Um, but it takes courage. It takes courage for Take leaders a to do that. And in, in, the, in politics today, it's such a shame on both sides that it's just all gone, the civility has all gone down the toilet. Yeah, right? yeah. So suboptimal decisions are being made on both sides of the aisle. Agree. Um, and I'm not sure that they want, I don't think they're bad people, these politicians, not all of them at least. Right. But uh, I think they want to do good and make impact, but I'm not sure that the system allows for that anymore. So, um, so I was there at a lucky time. And it set the standard for what excellence looked like for me. And then how did you approach business school then? Um, after I did that, I, th I, I realized some of these problems that we're trying to solve from a public policy perspective, business needs to be involved as well. Mm. It's not a one-sided solution if you want it to stick. So um, I said, you know, let me try my hand in business. Let me see like where this all comes together to be most effective in community activism and building um, robust That's interesting. Yeah, so I ended up joining a consulting firm, Booz Allen, and uh, I said, you know, okay, this Booz Allen thing, this is interesting. It's a little bit high-level strategy. I like to get my hands dirty. So I said, well, let me learn more. Let me go to business school. So it was on a whim. I said, okay, I'm going to apply to business school next year where should I apply and I said well where's the best for general management I said okay Harvard so I only applied to Harvard and I thought to myself if I get in fantastic if I don't get in awesome no problem I'll just go get another really amazing job and I happened to get in um, and had a great experience there met some lifelong friends do you feel like that experience is um I think obviously there's the what people imagine that to be in terms of the kind of brain power or that you're around similarly like-minded hard-working pick your adjective um, and did you find that to be the case did you find was there a lot of ego there did you find it to be as thought-provoking as you would hope it'd be like I know you said you had a great experience I'm, I'm looking for a little more juice or a little more detail on <laughs> for your listeners yes <laughs> of course not for me at all I'm not at all curious um, 
You know, I think it's just like anywhere else where you have the people who have ego, right. you have people who are more humble. Um, it is a group of people who are used to being the best. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that was a little bit of an eye-opener for me was all of a sudden people realized, oh, I'm not the top because now everyone's the top. And you could see people struggle with that. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I guess a lot of us probably self-select into a program like that. But uh, the thing that I thought was incredible was it was the best instruction I had ever had. It was a place of instruction where status quo or learning the traditional method was not the, the minimum. It was how to think about problems differently. And I thought that the case study method there was just exquisite in mm -hmm. terms of... Um, drawing on everyone's experience on how to solve the case, how to solve a real company problem. Mm -hmm. So they bring in CEOs of the right. cases, and so it was real. And I, you know, your your uh, <laughs> uh, program is about um, relatable yes. um, situations, and um, it was an academic institution that was real for mm -hmm. me. I don't know if everybody else there already had all this knowledge. I walked into it and I was like, wow, I'm learning so much about so many things that I've never had exposure to before. It was amazing. And the other thing I would say, I have other friends that have gone to these types of schools and maybe I'm curious about your opinion on this, but if you're someone that's evaluating or you're even thinking, how hard do I wanna work in high school or how hard do I wanna to work to get to one of these types of schools is my sense is that once you go through that program and you graduate, it is a door opener. There are certain opportunities that are going to be available to you that maybe aren't available to others based on that pedigree. And the thing that I really wanna point out that we've not quite talked about yet, but I think you've done a good job of articulating why, is you cannot minimize the hard work component of this. So of your story, of, of stories of success where so far everyone that I've spoken to, <laughs> all the podcasts I listen to, this thread of hard work, and you, you can't really fake that. You can't replace that. Um, you got, you've, you've got to earn it. And I suspect that an organization like that, and, and, and then the reward of that, I mean, you have to put in the time and the work, is that it is a door opener, not to say that it's cake from there because you still have to work at things, right? But would you say it did open some doors and there was a different type of reaction if you think about your undergrad and, and the experience of going into the workforce versus, you know, Harvard Business School? Yeah, I mean, I went to University of Maryland yeah. for undergrad. And so a uh, huge, you know, public school system. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, but there was a difference between... What, how you're treated, right? Um, Would you say? For sure how you're treated, the instruction, how I was taught things, all very, very different. I felt like I got my money's worth at Harvard. Um, and I got my money's worth at Maryland. You know, I paid a lot less, quite frankly. But, um, yeah, it opened doors. But um, you will see that a lot of people start to limit themselves after they go through a program like that because they think, Oh, I came out of Harvard, so I shouldn't be working for a window and door company. Let me tell you how many people right. said to me after I left my last job, why would you go work for a window and door company with your pedigree? And I looked at them and I thought, you know, Harvard's supposed to open my possibilities, not close my possibilities. It's so easy to fall in that trap, but I refuse because I follow leaders. 
Well, right. And this actually, you're like teeing me up perfectly because my other question for you is you are someone who bucks the system in a way that is, I think, meaningful, respectful, appropriate. At the same time, you're not a wallflower. You're not, I mean, in the limited time that we work together, I, I certainly observe that. Um, I think it's a confidence, It's but it's also like you're anchored in what you think is the right thing to do and you don't waver. Similar to what you were talking about with Ted Kennedy, right? There are certain people that like once you figure out, like I'm anchored in this and I know that it's right, like others be damned, right? I don't know if that's the right way to frame it, yeah. but I'm interested in like your, yes, because some people would say, what the heck? you know, your, your career decision at this moment it does not line up, you know? So, so how that sort of, um, I don't know if you're rebellious, but you know, is, is there like, how, has that always been a part of your personality? Do you think it's like just evolved through your different experiences? Yeah. I think that because I essentially raised myself, yeah, um, I never had to answer to anybody. Whatever problems came up, I had to solve them. If I didn't have enough money, go get a job, right? If you needed a new pair of jeans because you had the same pair of jeans for a year and there were holes all over them, you didn't go to your mom and say, I need new jeans. You went and you got a job and you worked with those pair of jeans. Mm -hmm. And so um, I do think that um, not being shackled in some ways uh, allowed me to have a more expansive view on what is and is not possible. Um, I do think that people, that works for me. It might not work for everybody. I do think that people need to um, fundamentally have a view of what they want their brand to be. What do they want to be known for? I didn't have this value system when I was first working for Tech Kennedy. It evolved over time because I saw people who are passionate about their value system or who are doing amazing work over here. So you take bits and pieces and you make the composite of who you are mm -hmm. and what brand you want to be. But if you don't select a brand for yourself, other people will define it for you. And that's where I finally got really frustrated about what I'm supposed to be doing, what my path should be. And I thought to myself, no, you don't get to define that. But in the absence of me defining it, they defined it for me. So I said, no, no more. When did that happen, do you feel like? I was working in the Maryland State Legislature and I was thinking about going to Harvard. And one of the legislators said, oh, Susan, you won't get into Harvard because you know you don't have a solid business background, you're coming up through politics, you know, you need to be corporate, you need to be able to get to elite places like Goldman Sachs. And I looked at him and at first I was like really offended. I'm like, how does he know? How do you know my life? But then I thought to myself, well, you know what? That's what you think of me and that's okay. That's your opinion. I'm gonna show you otherwise. I will demonstrate for myself what my value and worth is. So when I said to myself, I will know my worth forever. I will not let somebody else define it. And after that, I didn't. Wow, that's pretty incredible. Do you think that your experiences with, you know, your dad passing and other, you've had some fairly uh, strong traumatic, we don't have to go into a lot of detail, but you've had some fairly traumatic experiences in your life. Do you feel like those, like, make you stronger? Do you feel like, so one of the things that I think for myself is once you experience it and you get through it, you're like, it's never going to be as bad as that. And, you know, whether it's a personal trauma or, or even work, I've had some really 
really significant bombs in my professional life that I thought, oh, geez, am I going to recover from this? And you do, and you move on. But once you get through it, you're like, well, right, how, could, how bad can it be? So do you, do you think that's where some of your strength comes from? Um, you know, I used to think that way. I used to think it won't get any worse. My dad died. It won't get worse than that. That was pretty bad. Then my mom died. Then my brother died. You know, and they're on their 40s. And then yeah. I was at 9-11, right in the middle of it. Right, you know, I mean, right. Uh, you know, I've got all sorts of chemicals still in my body from all that. You know, I'm still processing out antimony and mercury from the buildings collapsing and that sort of thing. So you, I used to think it will never get worse, but I now know that it can always be worse. Wow. I could be homeless tomorrow. The difference between me and the guy on the corner of the street was very little. And so um, I know it can get worse. And so I think that that's what grounds me in, in humility for the mm. most part. And do you think also drives your in the moment? You're an in the moment kind of gal, right? right? Like you are. A, so we had this, uh, my husband and I, I think, had this discussion about you, which I don't know if I've told you about it. Um, and I'm probably going to embarrass you, but that's okay. I don't care. So, um, so for me, you know, and I know I've told you this part, so I, I had spent a long time in professional services, and then I was, um, I think, at a crossroads about, you know, what was my next step, and I think I'm always someone who has wanted to have impact and legacy in some capacity, and so we meet, and you were the first person, I think, that framed something in a way that was like, you can do this, right? So I think everybody needs a person, needs one person. And I think because I grew up in the organizations that I did, it was hard for me to distinguish agenda from true support of someone kind of behind me saying, you can do this. Plus my inclination to be people pleaser and, and all sorts of things, right? But you and I, I hadn't done anything for you yet, right? So there was no, there was no exchange of like, <laughs> like, like she's going to help me out because I, because I'm a person that anticipates needs and I react to those needs and I become invaluable and that's how I've been successful. But we hadn't had that yet. Mm -hmm. We were, it was very soon after we met that you were like, um, here's some possibilities and here's some things for you to think about. So I think your impact and your leadership and your vision of people and seeing, you said this once, like seeing around corners and people, right, that you have this ability to do that. And I think that's uh, accurate. What I think is very interesting though, and this goes back to my comment around being in the moment, when you, at least with our group of people, you can build this connection and you can build people around the mission and the vision and you can get people to say, yes, like let, we'll follow you, where do we go? But when that experience is over for you and you go to the next experience, you're on to the next experience and you're very focused in the present. And the people that were sort of in that spotlight, and I will use that word, like I think there is this amazing effect that you have, um, then you leave it and they're like, well, did, what, what happened? Like she doesn't love me anymore or that wasn't real or it was, you know, and I think that ability, so I've had time to reflect on this and really think about it. And I think your ability to do that is actually a success factor for someone that wants to make big change right that's able to like go in kind of disrupt create something and then move on and I think depending on where you are that may take longer or shorter or you get to a point where you operationalize things 
But I think it is interesting, and I don't even know if you've thought about this from this perspective, or you're, it's really hard to think about your own impact on people, but I do find it fascinating that, like, and I don't think, now that I've, like, had time to think about it, I'm like, Susan's not the only person that I've seen operate in this way, where it's when you're in it, you're in it, and then when you move on and you're in it. So is that is that about being in the moment and being so, like, focused on the goal and the mission and then... Right? Have I described that appropriately? <laughs> Is it even uh, conscious on your part? I, you know, I don't know if it's conscious on my part. I will say um, that what I said at the beginning of the podcast is still the same, which is I don't know how to do anything less than 120%. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, when I do leave a place, you know, I've been given that feedback before where people <laughs> feel like they've been sort of left behind. Um, and it's certainly not the intent, but it really is. The next place I go to, there's a whole new group of people who need to be developed, who need um, a, somebody to believe in them, somebody to be unreasonable with them, somebody um, mm. to help them see something outside of themselves, to challenge their biases around how the lenses they use to see the world through. And so, and that's all consuming for me, right? Because I am responsible at some level for this person's development. And for me, it's a privilege. Right. It's not my job. It's a privilege. I have the ability to possibly make some sort of impact on you so that you might be able to, whether you stay at the whatever company I'm sure. at or not, that you can go and forge the life you want to have. Right. That's what I care about. Well, like you're a shapeshifter, right? I think that, that ability to... I think seize the moment and you can't I I would say it's hard to affect change if you're not a hundred percent invested. So right, so if you were still one leg in here and one leg in there, it's hard to do that. I used to do that, but and I it's learned exhausting. to draw boundaries. Right. Because I got so exhausted. Uh, at some point in my life I learned that saying no does not mean you don't care. Mm. Now, the other person might feel like yeah. when you say no that they don't matter. But I learned for myself, saying no doesn't mean that I don't care. It just means that I'm human and I can only do so much. And I don't want to give diluted yeah. um, experiences to everybody. And, and a more mature view, I, I think now I can, um, like after my own experiences, is recognize that no is actually a very respectful thing to do sometimes, yeah. right? And it's yeah. honest. Yeah. Um, well, I will just say that, you know, any person that has the opportunity to work with you, for you, um, it's a fantastic opportunity and they should take full advantage of it because you're an amazing leader. So thank you for everything you did for me oh, yeah, um, now that I have an opportunity to publicly say that. Um, so before we wrap, because I've kept you a long time, I, I do like to ask this question yeah. about what advice would you give to your um, younger self? And I know that you have talked about serendipity and you've talked about things have sort of progressed naturally for you or more organically. I am curious, is there anything that you would say um, to either your, um, you know, sort of entry level self in terms of entry level talent or even high school or college or anything that you think might, would have benefited you with your sage advice and wisdom at this point? Oh, that's a big question. My goodness. Yeah. Um, I guess it, maybe it's a little bit uh, a 
about what you said at the beginning, which is it's never about the end point. It's always about the journey. Mm. So my favorite book that I reread every year is Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. And um, it's really, for me, such a seminal work around um, what the point of life is. And especially in our world, in our Western world, where it's all about achieving, hitting this title, making this money, buying this house, living in this neighborhood, it's, it's not the point. So um, that book really changed my view mm. on what it is our expectation really should be about this lifetime and what my responsibility is within that, within this world. So, you know, at, at some level, I think um, I drive myself simply by thinking um, I want to leave this world in a better place than when I came into it. Mm -hmm. um, and so if I could just tell my younger self, you're on the right track, right. do that. Right then, you know, I, I think it would have brought a lot of peace of mind early on. But as a young person, you got to learn it. Right. Because it's about the journey. And appreciating the journey while you're in it. It's super hard. Yeah. It's so hard. And then it's you do have the benefit now, we do as two old ladies, <laughs> to look back. And not old ladies, but you do have this benefit of, of, of seeing how those twists and turns impact things. And, and it's all good, right? It all ends up being for the right reasons. Yeah. Absolutely. Can't always see it though. Look at you, big star on relatable. <laughs> My goodness, yeah, big big. It's the circuitous path for right, you, right? Right, and it engages you and it inspires you, which yeah. therefore inspires the rest of us who listen to these podcasts. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You are welcome. Thank you for your time. So good to see you. Uh, likewise, thank you. <laughs> Thank you for listening and thank you, Susan. Such amazing advice and perspective. Missy and I were just talking about all of the great ahas there are throughout this episode. Thanks to Missy for producing. As a reminder, if you like this discussion, please subscribe and rate Relatable on iTunes. If you get a chance, please write a review and we would love to see your comments. Relatable is sponsored by Teresa Freeman Associates. You can follow us on Twitter or Instagram and we also have a TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable.